From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihira Zazan. This week, prisoners have taken enormous amount of risk to speak up and have used every avenues possible to seek justice. And lawyers have risked their lives. It's important to note that some 50 lawyers have reportedly been arrested during the protest, many of them solely for attempting to defend those who were facing national security charges. We speak with Tara Seperifar, senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch about the plight of imprisoned environmental activists in Iran. But first, we discuss a new investigation by the non-profit Investigative Lighthouse Reports in conjunction with several other investigative partners about the illegal forcible return of refugees by Italy to Greece. Refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq risk their lives stowing away on ferries bound for Italian ports in the hope of claiming asylum. But instead, when they are caught by the local authorities, they are detained in metal boxes and dark rooms in the halls of passenger ships and sent back to Greece. I spoke with Jack Sapo, an investigative reporter at the Lighthouse Report, about the group's investigation and, more generally, about the EU's latest refugee policies. Starting off that this is not a new practice in any way, and that if you go back 10, 15, even 20 years, you can find testimonies of people from Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria who have who've gone through these procedures. But our main motivation for looking at this issue in depth and providing a perspective on it that really uh, hasn't been afforded within at least the last decade is that we do a lot of work in Lighthouse reports on this issue of border violence and illegal pushbacks along the European Union's external border. And most of this takes place on land borders, right? So we've done a number of investigations on illegal pushbacks from Greece to Turkey or Croatia to Bosnia. We had never uh, looked at this microcosm of returns from Italy to Greece on these Adriatic ferries. What we wanted to do was provide a small and intimate perspective about something that happens on a regular basis and has happened on a regular basis on this part of the European border and to provide a a level of detail that hadn't previously done before. So we accomplished that by actually going on the ferries and identifying exactly where on these ships that, you know, transport tourists on their, you know, vacations and transports shipping goods as well. And we went on these ships and found out exactly where people were detained. So let's start from the beginning. This is an investigation done by several investigative media outlets in Europe. And you found that people who come to Italy from Greece hoping to apply for asylum are arrested at a port in Italy and Mm -hmm. then detained in metal boxes, dark rooms in the halls of passenger ships and sent back to Greece. Can you tell us more about the harrowing journeys these people take? Where do these people get on the passenger ships? Where in Italy do they end up? It was really shocking to read that from your report, and I'm just going to quote it here. While tourists on ferries are sipping from their sundowners, people, including children, are chained and locked up below decks in dark places. Right. So the... The, the general pattern for the way that these returns happen, as you described, right, people 
who have arrived to Greece with some dreams of continuing on to Italy to claim asylum or to you know find some form of additional security in their lives. You know, people mainly from Afghanistan, but also Iraq and Syria, Iran, in some cases, make their way to Greece. And then they essentially arrive to one of two main port cities, that being Patras and Igumenitsa, two Greek port, port cities. And essentially what their pattern is to attempt to get on to these ferries which run between Greece and Italy. So they'll find ways to sneak on or, you know, to make themselves hidden onside the ships um, that will then over, over the course of either between a 10 hour journey or in some cases a 36 hour journey, these ferries go to one of four Italian ports. And those four Italian ports are, are Bari, Brindisi, Ancona and Venice. And this trip from Patras to Venice, it's the longest one. It, it lasts like 36 hours. And then you know, once these guys arrive to these Italian ports, they'll try and sneak off or they'll try and leave the, their vessel. And oftentimes as they're doing so, um, they'll be apprehended by Italian authorities or the authorities inside the ports. And as you said, what will engage this process of return, in which case people are you know, turned around really quickly to be brought back to Greece. In most of these cases, you know, due process isn't followed, right? So these people might be wanting to claim asylum in Italy. They might be minors who are entitled to certain legal protections. But in the span of a couple hours, they'll be put back on, on that ship. And as our investigation found, chained or locked away in some small metal cell for the duration of this, you know, really extended journey, in which case sometimes people don't have access to toilet or food or water or any blankets. So the conditions in, inside these, you know, return journeys are quite cruel in a lot of ways. And you spoke with some of these refugees or asylum seekers, and you basically corroborated their testimonies by uh, visiting these ships. In the report, you write, we found that on one ferry named Asterion 2, people are locked in a former bathroom with broken showers and toilets along with two mattresses, names and dates of detainees are scribbled on the wall in different languages. We have visual evidence of this room obtained with a small camera through a keyhole, which matches description given by asylum seekers. What else did they tell you, these asylum seekers who were sent back from Italy to Greece? Yeah, so we, we talked to a handful of people, around seven for this investigation, but we identified, you know, within the last year, 15 cases that we confirmed happened. But, you know, the actual number of people who were returned this way is much higher. The people that we spoke to, it's a really scary journey. You're locked in, you don't have any information about what's happening to you. A lot of these cases, guys are going through these procedures and they're not provided any translation at all. So there's a confusion about, you know, which authorities are handling them, who they're being turned over to. And all of this is happening so quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, these guys are chained up or locked away in some room. So it's really disorientating for people who go through these procedures. And, you know, like I said, the fact that in some cases people are chained or um, deprived access to a toilet or, or food. It's quite disheartening for them. But I think that one thing that's important to be said is that it's really like unfortunate aspect of, of the situation is that people who are on the move like this, refugees and migrants who are trying to cross this way and then are returned this way, 
They're subjected to, by all of the authorities and the societal forces around them, they're forced to live in squats in Greece. And once they're apprehended by the Italian authorities, they're not treated as humans. There's an acute normalization of this, of this violence. And, you know, there's a, a reinforcement that what's happening to these guys is normal or that it should happen. And I think that that's really one of the unfortunate elements of these procedures is that maybe the guys don't think of it as so out of the ordinary. You know, that's something that you'll hear in conversation of, oh, it's normal or, oh, of course, you know, this happens, but this is what we have to do or this is what we have to endure to make our journeys or go where we want. But it's not normal, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's... um it's illegal and it's inhumane what these guys go through. And in some cases, it's deadly, not in necessarily in these return procedures. But you have cases of people who try and sneak on these ships and because they don't have any legal and safe pathways to claim asylum, to arrive to Italy and claim asylum. They take like these huge risks in getting onto the ship. So you have people who are crushed by the trucks that they're trying to crawl under. You have people who are hiding in unsafe areas that are deprived of oxygen and who have died this way on the ships as well. So it's really it's really difficult situation for the people who are, are forced to go on these journeys. And there are also children on board these ships. Yeah. And so that's an important thing to understand as well, that you see so many of the people who are going on this route from you know Afghanistan, one of the biggest demographics of people who are represented who are making these journeys, they're really young, that they leave their homes when they're 12 or 13, 14. And by the time that they arrive to Greece, they might be... 15, 16, 17, and they will go on these journeys. And of course, that's an additional level of of adversity. So Jack, what happens to these people when they return and land in um, Greece? The Greek authorities have documented at least 157 cases in the past two years, but this is probably an undercount. So what happens to them? I mean, unfortunately, once people are returned to Greece, for you know the majority of people, the cycle continues. The punitive returns don't dissuade people from continuing on their journeys or or you know looking to find this asylum or security that they're that they're pursuing on their journeys. In most cases, when people return to Greece, they'll be processed by Greek authorities in one of the stations close by the port, and after some time, they'll be let go and will go back to. The squats that the guys are staying in, in Ikumenitsa, there's like an encampment on a hill overlooking the port. And people will will stay there until they can attempt this, this route again. You also got confirmation from a number of crew members that these places were being used to detain asylum seekers being returned to Greece. Did they know that these people were held in such a horrific and inhumane conditions that they were illegally returned to Greece? Yeah, that's one of the more interesting uh, parts of the investigation. And I think that it would have been better if we could go deeper on this, because in our conversations with crew members, there was a general awareness that these procedures happened. But there wasn't a real engagement with that, right? That, you know, the crew members that we spoke to said, yeah, we know that there's a room that people are detained in, but, you know, this is for like the bad people or these are just for the people that we need to bring back. But we didn't have a chance to talk to, let's say, like the security who manage and control this. And for, you know, most of like the day-to-day crew members who might be ushering you off the, on and off the ship or providing you drinks or something like this, there was a general apathy or lack of, Lack of awareness, maybe uh, an awareness that this detention room and detention procedures existed, but no engagement with the fact that they were Mm -hmm. asylums. So the crew members knew 
that these people were locked in in bathrooms with broken showers and toilets. They did not have access to food, water, no sleeping area. So they knew that and they allowed that to happen over and over again. Yes, several of the crew members that we spoke to were aware of the existence of these rooms and their purpose. In 2014, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Italy had unlawfully returned asylum seekers to Greece in this way, denying them the opportunity to lodge a claim for protection. But your report notes, eight years on, despite the Italian authority having repeatedly claimed this practice has not happened, you found that it continues in full force. Is this happening with the full knowledge of the European Union Border Guard Agency Frontex? Yeah, that's a, a tough question in terms of awareness. I, what I can say is that the response that we've received from this investigation so far, there has been engagement with it both in Italy and Greece from, let's say, people sympathetic to, to the issue. So just recently, like yesterday or the day before, uh, members of the Italian left party you know, sent a, a written parliamentary inquiry mm-hmm. to the Ministry of of the interior in Italy, uh, asking for explanations for what we found in our report. And likewise, we have some indications that in Greece, there are some lawyers who are preparing to uh, file some inquiry uh, as to how these practices exist as well. I think that as it as it relates to Frontex, it's difficult to say. We came across some indications that in the past, Frontex translators may have had have provided some assistance for translation prior to these returns. But it was difficult to say, and I don't think that we're able to conclude that this was something pervasive or or routine in that way. In terms of awareness of the existence of these activities, I think that, you know, this is an open secret for the last decades that that these procedures go on. So I would be very surprised if people within context did not, were not aware that, you know, these Mm. procedures go on. As you said earlier, this is just a microcosm of what thousands of refugees from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and other countries have been facing. Last year, Lighthouse reports and partners revealed that hundreds of witnesses testified to the existence of black site clandestine detention centers where refugees and migrants are denied the right to seek asylum and held prior to being forced back. Can you talk us through where these sites are and can you tell us more about these black sites and what happens to asylum seekers who try to cross borders in Europe? This investigation that we did into black sites, informal or off the books detention centers, it focused on a place of detention in in Bulgaria. So people who are trying to cross from Turkey into Bulgaria and are detained, were detained in essentially like a cage or like a kennel. We looked at the presence of similar sites on the Hungary-Serbia border, on the Hungary side. And we also looked at this practice of detaining people in in similar ways, but inside of prisoner transport vans in Croatia, on the Croatian-Bosnian border. So what those three sites all have in common is that they um, are all on the European Union's external land border, the so-called Balkan route into the European Union. And those are three examples, but I'm sure that there are other uh, sites like this in existence. And I think that, you know, what unites them all is the fact that, you know, people who are crossing these borders and looking for better lives for themselves are so routinely denied the humanity that they should be afforded because what they're doing, you know, seeking asylum is legal, but instead of being treated with 
legality, they're subjected to these illegal detentions, and then in many cases, violent pushbacks out to the other side of the EU external border. Your investigation followed the money trail, and you linked EU funding directly to these secret detention and pushback sites. The Bulgarian border forces used approximately 170,000 euros to renovate a police station where cage-like shed is located, and that happened in 2017. And the same goes for Hungarian, Croatians. So can you tell us about the money trail and the EU funding for these black sites? That's such a great point. And it's so true that hundreds of millions of euro over the last five years have, have been pumped into these EU countries that line the external border to crop up and to make their border responses more robust. And we see that in the funding for these informal detention facilities. We see it in huge funding of border technologies to surveil refugees and migrants as they're crossing borders and make groups more easily and, and more efficient to, to capture and subject to you know, these illegal procedures. And in the case of the detention center or place of detention in Bulgaria, the linkage between these EU funds or EU um, interests and the interests of Bulgaria was so clear because feet away from where this place of detention was were Frontex cars, which were working there during the day, not necessarily involved directly with the detention process or directly with the pushback process. But parking their cars so close and operating so closely um, that it, it's impossible to deny that, you know, they're not aware of it. But that's what so much of this funding or so much of this support is designed to do. It's to make it possible for these illegal procedures to occur, but to, you know, afford some plausible deniability that, oh, this isn't us or this isn't our, our intent. So these sites are not as secret and clandestine. They are said to be because the EU is funding it. And the EU border guard agency Frontex knows about them, and probably they know these uh, asylum seekers are being mistreated. So they they know about this, right? Yeah, for sure. And and I would say that in that way, um, anybody who's working inside these apparatuses, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise, or you know, there is like an awareness of of their use, but. None of these places are designated as places where people should be or can be detained. So that's that's where their designation becomes informal. Um, according to a report, in Hungary, you captured photographs of asylum seekers being caught and escorted to a patrol station by civilian police officers holding batons, then forced to sit on the ground for hours before being passed onto the official police and pushed back. And you captured drone footage of routine illegal pushbacks from Hungary. You write about these um, refugees being pepper sprayed. One Afghan woman told you she was held with more than 20 people, including small children in a in a car with capacity of eight. I mean, there are so many examples of what these refugees are enduring. Are these sites still in operation? In the month or two since our investigation went out, we've received reports that, you know, pushbacks in this way along these borders that we were discussing still occur. So, you know, there are people who have continued to be returned from Hungary to Serbia and 
from Bulgaria to, to Turkey, Croatia to Bosnia. But as for the uh, utilization of these specific sites that we wrote about, we haven't been able to obtain confirmation one way or the other. That being said, as it relates to the funding, you know, there are the response of the European Commission to our investigation was pretty lacking, and there was no acknowledgement that what these funds were being used for and you know how they're being used in reality. So there's no indications that th- that funding is you know in, in jeopardy or under increased scrutiny, which is quite unfortunate. So Jack, since these um, refugees are pushed back from w- one border to another, where do they go? At the end of the day, all of these stories, they they relate back to people who have their own individual desires and, and passions and you know dreams about where they're going or what they want to make of their lives. And it's really important to realize that. And this cruel cycle of, of pushbacks mm. of going on your journeys and being returned and going on your journeys and being returned, it's extremely cruel. And I think that a lot of people end up living, you know, for, for the time that they're on their journeys in this like liminal space, this limbo where you, you talk to people and they've gone through these procedures, you know, 10, 15, 20 times of just going and being returned, going, being returned. And I think that especially when you account for the violence that people observe when they go through these procedures, it really sticks with people. And, you know, there are physical scars that people pick up through these journeys, but also emotional ones that when you talk to people who have succeeded and, you know, they've started their asylum process in Netherlands or Germany or wherever, they'll say, I'm I'm still haunted by what I experienced on these borders. And it's difficult for me to sleep or it's difficult for, for me to walk mm-hmm. alone in the dark because of this, because I'm still haunted by what I went through. Mm. So they carry a trauma with them for a long time. They for live sure. with that trauma. For sure. You know, sadly, in addition to criminalization of asylum seekers, people who try to help refugees have also been criminalized. Just recently, a group of 24 volunteers went on trial on the Greek island of Lesbos, more than four years after they were arrested for carrying out migrant rescue missions off Greece. The European Parliament uh, report has called this largest case of criminalization of solidarity. These rescue workers can face years in prison for their work aiding refugees from Middle East landing in um, Greek shores. Can you tell us about this trial and how significant is this development? A lot of the stuff that we've talked about has focused on this very cruel treatment that refugees and migrants were on their route to the European Union uh, experience. But it's worth saying that as an opposing force to this within European society uh, is a robust field of solidarity and local and community activists who are attempting to extend the hand and greet people who are on their journeys and looking for a better life with solidarity and, and compassion. And the unfortunate trend within the last several years within not just Greece, but a number of countries that are along this route has been to meet these activists with punitive and and sham charges and trials in a lot of ways. So the case that you're just describing, in which case there are a number of people who are on trial in Lesbos recently, but two of the most prominent were uh, these activists called Sarah and Sean. I should mention that Sara Mardini is a Syrian refugee and an activist. Sean and Sarah were arrested in 2018 after they took part in several search and rescue operations around the Lesbos Island to assist refugees stranded at sea. 
And so far, the judges have decided to drop some of the misdemeanor charges, but these activists still face more serious criminal charges, including facilitating the legal entry of migrants and participation in a criminal organization. Amnesty International wrote in a statement that, quote, this case is a textbook example of how the criminal justice system can be misused by the authorities to punish and deter the work of human rights defenders. It's really unfortunate, right, because it's just one case of many. And you can find ongoing right now other activists who are on trial or who have had charges brought to them in Greece. And in the last years, we've seen similar issues in Italy or Serbia and Bosnia. And I think that it's kind of a crossroads moment for European society about which way things will go. Mm. Um, And it's a bit too early to say exactly what, what way that will be. Can you tell us more about what these rescue workers did? Their organization, their work was... The idea was to, right, because the, the way that people cross to Lesbos from Turkey is is leaving from like the area around Izmir in Turkey in boats that will arrive to Lesbos. And sometimes along that way, boats capsize or people fall out of the boats and need assistance in this way, right? Because the water is really dangerous. People, people die. Um, they don't know how to swim or they're weighed down by their clothes. So their work was to assist these people as swimmers to to make sure that people wouldn't drown. What are the broader implications of this case? As I was saying that this is one case of many, and if they were convicted, I think that this would embolden uh, not just courts in Greece, but across Europe to be more punitive and be more harsh in their treatment of, of solidarity workers and activists. So there's a lot on the line in that way. Jack Sapo is an investigative reporter with Lighthouse Reports, a nonprofit based in the Netherlands that leads complex transnational investigations into treatment of undocumented immigrants in Europe. Previous work of his has focused on the documentation of human rights abuses against migrants along the Balkan route from West Asia into the European continent. You may read the report titled Detained Below Deck, How Asylum Seekers Are Held in Secret Prisons on Commercial Ships to Facilitate Illegal Pushbacks from Italy to Greece at lighthousereports.nl. That's lighthousereports.nl. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
In January 2018, nine environmental activists in Iran were arrested and falsely accused of using their work with the non-profit organization Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation to protect endangered cheetahs as a cover for foreign spying. Marking the fifth anniversary of their arrest earlier this week, a letter by imprisoned environmental activist Sepita Kashani was released in which she reminisces the treatment that she and other prisoners received at the hands of interrogators. What she writes in her letter appears to be in line with what one of her imprisoned colleagues, Nilufar Bayoni, had previously stated in her writings. Nilufar Bayoni writes of 1,200 hours of interrogation by the intelligence branch of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. I spoke with Tara Seperifar, the senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch, about the plight of the environmental advocates jailed for the past five years simply for working to protect and preserve Iran's natural resources. This week actually marks the fifth year anniversary of the arrest of Sepida Kashani and her colleagues at the Persian Wildlife Foundation. Five years ago, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps intelligence organization arrested Sepideh Kashani, Nilufar Bayoni, and their colleagues on bogus allegations of using environmental projects as the front for espionage. To this date, they have failed to release a shred of evidence into such allegations. We found out actually became public that these uh, conservationists were arrested when their prominent colleague, Iranian-Canadian professor Kavu Sayed Emami, died in custody under suspicious circumstances. And that was when the news of the arrest actually broke. Not only authorities did not conduct transparent investigation, but through the letters of Sepide and Nilufar and public information, we know that they used um, Kavu's suspicious death to pressure and torture other detainees into confession. Um, they also placed Kavu's wife under a travel ban for a year and a half, attempted to take over their properties. The ordeal these environmentalists have been through that ultimately resulted in um, unfair sentencing of them from to imprisonment that ranges from 10 years to four, was one of the most politicized cases that included infighting between different segments of intelligence service in Iran back then. This happened under Rouhani's government, uh, members of his cabinet and Minister of Intelligence on their end uh, maintain that they don't have any evidence of espionage on the side of those who are arrested. Yet, RRGC intelligence pushed this case through, kept these people isolated and in solitary confinement for an extremely long period, an unusually long period at some point introduced charges that could have carried the death penalty, subjected them to various forms of torture that at the time of trial, Nilufar Bayani started exposing. And later through these letters, we know, I still think we know that the, the tip of the iceberg of what these individuals went through. But I think this case also is a very good example 
of to what extent intelligence apparatus in Iran can and will influence the process and how revolutionary courts work hand in hand with the intelligence apparatus to suppress any form of organized dissent and they're perfectly happy to go along with it. We have been talking a lot more about allegations of torture and the sham trials for protesters uh, who were arrested over the past few months, but we have many cases that serves as very good indicators, precedent, and examples of just the length of the arm of the intelligence apparatus and unfair judicial system in Iran. Just to add to what you said, in fact, as written in her recent letter, Sepide Kashani somewhat naively tells her interrogator that there will be a trial and a judge before whom we can prove our innocence. And the interrogator responds, quote, the judge is one of our people and he will be punished if he issues a verdict that is different from what I say. Sepide goes on to write that, quote, the judge did exactly that. He issued the verdict that the interrogator had called for in a short trial with fabricated charges. Also in her letter, Sepide Kashani writes, the interrogator insisted that I was Jewish Baha'i in disguise, meaning that she is an agent of Mossad or the CIA. She was sentenced to six years in prison. She has served five of the six. Is she jeopardizing her release by writing this open letter? Why do you think she decided to do that? So in terms of what we can learn, there are really horrific details that both Milufar and Sepita have disclosed. For instance, they both have said that um, interrogators um, showed them very disturbing images and videos of Dr. Sayyid Amami's body threatening them and their loved ones with the same faith. Um, they speak about threat of mock executions. Nidufar spoke about being taken out of detention center to a safe house, being subjected to sexual harassment, verbal sexual harassment. And again, I think it's important to note that in the case of Nilufar, authorities brought a charge against her after the letters she had written was published in the media and is a very good indicative of the absolute lack of will to investigate these allegations and basically the system either being aware or being perfectly happy with the fact that these this has become the routine and again these are some of the very high profile cases yeah. another person arrested and, and is in prison uh, with this group is Murad Tahbaz mm. who has uh, both American and, and British nationality and he has been used as another bargaining chip in Iran's policy of using dual and foreign nationals. So this case has become very, very complicated. I think Sepida answers the question you're asking about why she's risking jeopardizing her release. Um, after, I think, at least three years, they started around COVID time, authorities started giving them very, very brief furloughs and for COVID reasons. Both Sepida and Ilufa were able to go on a furlough when they when they contracted COVID-19. And that was obviously a very bittersweet moment for families to receive their loved ones while they had contracted COVID. She says 
in her own letter, in her own words, that she feels strongly to tell their story now that that there is attention on the cases of sham trials and what detainees are subjected. And she's hoping that their case adds to the long list of cases that comes pre-uprising and has basically resulted in lives of these individuals who were actually, from all accounts we know, very dedicated to the cause. Some of them actually were living abroad, went back to do this work in Iran because they cared so much about environment and biodiversity. It's been unjustly behind bars. So she feels that this is her moment and her part in the movement we're seeing, and she needs to put the record and her narrative out there and explain just the extent of how unfair these prosecutions are. She starts her letter by saying, I am Sepide Kashani, um, a lover. I love my country, my family, and my dear woman, who is her husband. He's also in prison. Both Sepide and Nilufar were members of the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and they were arrested in January 2018. So before we move on, can you remind us who these activists were and what were the charges against them? Sure. As you mentioned, they were members of a local NGO, Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundations. They were working on projects related to preserving biodiversity in Iran. They were going around installing cameras. They had imported with all proper permissions to monitor wildlife and different movements. In January um, 2018, um, IRGC intelligence arrested them and the prosecutor accused them of using environmental projects as a cover for espionage. Later, they elevated the charges to uh, corruption on earth, but that charge was dropped. And ultimately, the members of the group who survived, as I mentioned, Dr. Kaguseya Damami um, died under suspicious circumstances in in custody. And to this date, there's no no transparent investigation into his death and his family has been harassed. Those who were tried were sentenced on the charge of collaborating with the hostile state of the U.S., they were sentenced to imprisonment between 10 years to, to four years. Those members who were tried in February 2020 were sentenced to imprisonment between four to 10 years. And both both uh, Murat Tahbaz and Nil Farabayani were also sentenced to a return of illicit earnings which for Nilufar, for instance, included what she had earned as her salary when she was working for the UN Environment Program. Mm. Just to give you the level of ridiculousness of these charges and lack and this, of any evidence. And also, Tara, we should mention that the area that they were they were working in was designated a protected area by the UN. This group was working in collaboration with the state environmental organization, as well as United Nations and international projects. So what they were doing was very transparent out in the open and through collaboration, both with the government and also international institutions. It took an extraordinary long time for these people to be brought before the trial. And during that 
period, they were kept in isolation and for a very long time in solitary confinement. And again, I use these adjectives in relativeness to the Iranian system. So just to try to explain how unusual this case was. So after two years, without having access to a lawyer of their choice, they were brought to trial. And when Nilufar, this is what we know from the minimal information that was available at the time, when Nilufar spoke up and tried to explain to the judge that she was subjected to torture and she was coerced to confess and she she doesn't want to stand by the confessions she had to make under pressure. The judge refused to accept her account, refused to order investigation and moved forward with sentencing. And I think if I remember correctly, they did not have access, nor their lawyers had yes. access to their indictment or to evidence against them until the trial. And while this has unfortunately become the norm for many of the cases we hear, it was definitely a point of departure at the time and something that revolutionary courts had started doing. Revolutionary court judges are using this provision that exists in Iranian law that prevents access of those who are facing national security charges to lawyer of their choice during investigation, but they have extended it to the trial, basically restricting access to a lawyer even further beyond domestic restrictions. Um, families were not present, they were not given an opportunity to, to defend themselves. And then despite the risk that the defendant here, Nilufar, took upon herself to speak up, the judge just refused to, to even order an investigation into the allegations. So there have been multiple occasions that they have spoken up about their treatments. They have written letters to various authorities, yet there has been no, no investigation and they have been kept in prison and deprived of opportunities for, for instance, conditional release or fellow that normally under Iranian law, you would be eligible to use after spending one third of your sentence. And according to your organization, Human Rights Watch, during the second trial session, Nilufar Bayani stood up, said that she rejected the accusation of spying and described abuse, she said, she had experienced in detention. Quote, if you were being threatened with a needle of hallucinogenic drugs hovering above your arm, you would also confess to whatever they wanted you to confess, she told the court. Also, Mohammad Hossein Aghasi, a lawyer, one of the conservationists, had chosen to represent him. He had not been allowed to represent his client in the court. And we see this practice repeating itself today with the arrest and sham trials of protesters. That's exactly correct. And I think with the mountain of evidence and precedent, it would be impossible for anyone in a position of authority in Iran today to claim that they're not aware of the extent of violations in in custody today. If they are not investigating or they're not speaking up or they're denying it, it is a deliberate effort to conceal truth because prisoners have taken enormous amount of risk to speak up and have used 
every avenue possible to seek justice. And lawyers have risked their lives. It's important to note that some 50 lawyers have reportedly been arrested during the protest, many of them solely for attempting to defend those who were facing national security charges. So it is hard to have any reason to believe that there's any political will to deal with the very concerning situation in detention. And now thousands of people who are still detained related to protests are at risk and are subjected to similar mistreatment and sham trials. In her letter in reference to the protest movement, Sepi Dekoshoni informs us that she's breaking her silence after five years as I said, for her country, for her female compatriots, and for the youth. She adds, I am as much of a spy as the beloved youth of this land are murderers and rioters. Sepide, again, is, um, as we discussed earlier, is breaking her silence to also help those who've been struggling for freedom of social justice in Iran. Before we end, can you talk about the campaigns underway to help thousands of political prisoners in Iran, some of whom or in danger of execution. I think what the way Sepida puts it is very accurate. This this protest movement has connected generations um, of grievances and has brought struggles and grievances of different communities back to the center of political debate. So what Sepida is doing is adding their narrative as a testimony to talk about the systemic nature of these violations. What we know about the current trial is that they are equally unfair. Defendants are systematically deprived of access to lawyer. Judges are handing over death sentences based on allegations that not only violate international standards, but also domestic safeguards. Human rights groups have compiled some 80 names um, of people who are facing charges that could carry the death penalty. Some of these trials have already happened and, and people have received their sentences. That's not the death penalty. But at minimum, there are 14 people who are at imminent risk because their cases have been issued by the courts of first instance. Some of them have even been upheld by the Supreme Court in extremely untransparent and unfair processes. And it is important to note that the campaign to try to stop these executions has a very strong component inside the country. International condemnation, international pressure matters and is helpful, but is empowering and enforcing very strong opposition to death penalty in these cases that is coming from people inside the country and lawyers and domestic journalists are doing their best to report on these cases, get on these cases where possible, and force basically this unfair, untransparent black box of judicial system to put a pause on these issues. And in some marginal cases, they have been partially successful, and they're doing it by risking their own freedom. The two journalists who reported about the cases of execution for Sharq and Etamad paper both were arrested before the third and fourth executions were carried out a few weeks ago. What concerns you the most? What we are concerned about is first and foremost the situation of trials and detainees. And we also fear increasing crackdown, which is hard 
to say increasing because it has been relentless over the past four months on those who are trying to raise their voice about the situation. Um, as I said, when uh, journalists were reporting for domestic papers about execution, talking to family members, talking to Islamic jurists and uh, scholars about why these charges are not being interpreted correctly or arrested, we fear that what we are entering is, is a period of maximum crackdown on forms of peaceful dissent, especially now that what we are watching for is first and foremost the situation of detainees, how they're going to try to even uh, further close down the space. And what, we, what we're concerned about is that if the attention of the media moves on from the situation, they would feel even more emboldened. Tara Seperifar is a senior Iran researcher at Human Rights Watch. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Now, the upcoming events in the Bay Area. Bay Area for Iran will have a solidarity march with the people of Iran on Saturday, January 28th at 12 p.m. The march will start at Mission Street and 16th Street in San Francisco. For more information, please visit the group's Instagram page at Bay Area Number 4 Iran. That's Bay Area Number 4 Iran. At Rise Collective, in collaboration with Mosaic Philanthropy, presents Women Live Freedom, a public art projection featuring 30 artworks by anonymous international artists projected onto the facade of the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. These works respond to the systemic gender inequality and discrimination that cuts across class, religion, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, and generations in Iran. At Rise Collective brings together cultural organizers, scholars, and justice advocates to support public art projects that amplify the message of the protesters in solidarity with the movement. This event will be held on Friday, January 27th and Saturday, January 28th from 6 until 10 p.m. at the Asian Art Museum located at 200 Larkin Street in San Francisco. For more information, please visit asianart.org. That's asianart.org. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. And we end the show with the song Crying Shame by Syrian-American rapper and poet Omar Afendam, who will be performing with Palestinian-American multi-instrumentalist maestro Ronnie Malley this Saturday at 7 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. at Stanford University. For more information, please visit live.stanford.edu or call 650-724-2464. Now they say Syria's confusing. Can't decide which of the sides they really should be choosing. Here's a thought, how about you recognize that we're all losing and there's nothing civil about a war where kids are stabbed to death and mothers smothered on a kitchen floor or by the kitchen floor. Collapsing from a barrel bomb, conspiracies we've carried on like baggage from our colonizers. Unified by our ability to seek the wrong advisors. Money hungry evildoers, power hungry presidents. Using hunger as a weapon to destroy the residents. Patronizing marathons of half truth on the news. These bloody Arabs. Headlines. Or punchlines, come on man, two for one, I'm not amused They yell, somebody tell these anchormen It's best to keep it classy Burgundy's the color of our blood that's flooding in the Aussie Civil disobedience flowed within our veins Our fathers went against the grain While Hitler hid inside a lion's mane A crying shame mm, A crying shame a crying shame the way the boy was crying wolf and they believed him using war on terror rhetoric while murdering the peaceful crying shame say it with me crying shame crying shame say it with me crying shame crying shame the way the boy was crying wolf and they believed him using war on terror rhetoric while murdering the peaceful it's ironic and deceitful egging on fanaticism until it starts to seep through 
Obama bombed America, you'd probably be extreme too. Like if your mama jumped up off a bridge, you'd take a leap too. But the fine line between these timelines is almost see-through, and that's why the world forgets it. Now a couple hundred thousand dead and no one regrets it. It being the negligence when children needed medicine. It being the fact that amputations aren't lessening. It being depressing and it being what's stressing them. Them being the millions of displaced, so who could stay in power? Several hundred every hour, several thousand in a day, until there's nothing left to say except, what a pity. Zachary's he's becoming one of Jordan's largest cities. But this one has no infrastructure, people eat by sewage. Wait, if you're really Arab, find a way to blame the Jewish states. And if you're really Arab, find a way to... Come on, man. A crying shame. A crying shame the way the war was crying wolf and they believed them using war on terror rhetoric while murdering the peaceful crying shame say it with me crying shame crying shame say it with me crying shame a crying shame the way the world was crying wolf and they believed them Egging on fanaticism until it started to creep in I pray my people take these words as a call to the conscience Sudia is now the bottleneck of all our region's conflicts Shia, Sunni, Turkish, Kurdish, religious and secular Imperialist and anti-this to levels that are molecular 99% of all matter is empty space so nothing's real Except the scars and smiles on a child's face just let them heal Egos aside, this ain't a tit for tat While the opposition kept on bickering should be how laughed Not to mention these crazy fanatics who took advantage from all over the planet uh, Growing percentage of this havoc and this pain Causing damage to our revolution and tarnishing its name Not to mention Allah's name and all his mercy and compassion Beheading people left and right for not following their fashions It's tragic, so many fingers in the pot Cooking this fatal fetid, what a waste The average Syrian can even taste a sip of metin A disgrace And a crying shame a crying shame the way the boy was crying wolf and they believed him using war on terror rhetoric while murdering the peaceful crying shame say it with me crying shame crying shame say it with me crying shame crying shame the way the boy was crying wolf and they believed him eradicating populations while the world was sleeping see it all comes down to choices most Syrians have none left that's why a former business owner has to resort to gun theft why a little girl